0: Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio.
1: With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876.
2: Hello and welcome to Bookmark. This is the show that talks about books and writing with a local slant. And we've got a debut themed show today. Our featured guest is Jo Browning-Rowe, talking about her debut novel, A Terrible Kindness. We'll also hear from married couple Kieran Millwood-Hargreave and Tom DeFreston, talking about their first children's book together, Julia and the Shark. And Dira Neagrifer chats about her first piece of prose fiction, A Ghost in the Throat. But we'll give you a proper introduction in just a moment, Joe. but first of all, welcome to Bookmark. Thank you, Lee. And talking about debuts today, I don't think you'll mind saying this debut's been a long time coming, hasn't it?
0: It has, yes, as has often been noted. Yeah, it's just, I think um, writing a novel is a hard thing and some amazing people manage to do it in a short space of time, but it's taken me a long time. So I practiced for about 10 years on another piece. <laughs> and then I think the serious writing of this has probably taken about five years.
2: And how long from finishing writing to getting a publishing deal? It was a couple
0: of years. Yeah, a couple of years and and some more sort of intense editing and rewriting. I was shortlisted for the, the Bridport Peggy Chapman Andrews Award, and that was on the strength of three chapters. And I was about halfway through and that was an enormous boost to, to help me keep going. But even, you know, once I'd finished And having been shortlisted, I still had quite a few rejections and then I had to restructure it because I knew that wasn't working. So, yeah, it's a long slog.
2: There's no two ways about it. And if writers are listening to this and they're in the same position or they, they feel that it's never going to happen for them, what kept you going?
0: I think really that I enjoyed the process. I think if I hadn't enjoyed the process, I, I couldn't have done. I just knew it was what I wanted to do. And I got significant encouragements along the way because I think that's the head job you have to do, isn't it? You have to believe yourself a writer but then you don't know if it's ever gonna happen for you. And that's a difficult place to be. I remember hearing Rose Tremaine talking about that donkeys years ago and and taking it to heart. And I just think, it certainly won't happen if you don't write it. <laughs> so if you feel you're compelled to write and you want to write, just give it your best shot and learn all you can and hope for the best. That's all any of us can do.
2: <laughs> well, I'm very glad you did. It's an excellent book and can't wait to talk to you about it. But we're going to hear your first choice of music now. Is music important to you, Jo?
0: It is important. At different points in my life, it's played a bigger part. And In the last few years, I've thought I want it to play a bigger part again. I think it sort of waned a bit in my cultural life, as it were. And I think writing about it quite intensely with this novel and listening to music a lot while I was
2: writing it has has been great. And your first choice of music is Allegri's Miserere, which plays a key part in the book. Is that why you've chosen this? Did you know it beforehand? Yeah, I
0: did know it beforehand. And again, I don't know lots of choral music, but this was played to me when I was a child. And I was it's very accessibly beautiful. I think you don't have to know a lot about music to tell this is this is a gorgeous sound. And as a child, I listened to it and was stunned by the fact that that voice was coming from a child the same age as I was at the time. So it made a big impact on me then. And living in Cambridge, I'm fortunate to be able to go and hear it performed every Good Friday and every Ash Wednesday at the two choral colleges here. And I know it's so intimately now because of going through it bar by bar trying to describe it. It does feel very deeply part of me.
2: And that was Allegra's Miserere, the first choice of music on Bookmark today from our featured guest, Joe Browning-Rowe. Joe has an MA in creative writing from UEA and is creative writing supervisor at Lucy Cavendish College, Cambridge. Her debut novel, A Terrible Kindness, was published this month. Sophie Hanna described it as extraordinary. And Rachel Joyce said, it's a long time since I've read a debut novel that moved me so much. I couldn't agree more. What a tremendous piece of work this is, Joe. It is only just out. So for those listeners who haven't read it, what's it about?
0: It was initially inspired by conversations I had with two embalmers by then in their 70s, who as young men had gone in 1966 as volunteers to the Aberfan disaster, which is when a mining waste tip loosened by rain had careered down the Welsh mountainside onto a small village primary school. And so my story follows one young embalmer's life and how he deals with his own aftermath from the disaster. So the novel begins and ends in Abervan, but in between the 17 years of my character, William Lavery's life as a boy chorister in Cambridge, then in London, training to be an embalmer and after Abervan with post-traumatic stress disorder and his marriage in trouble, he returns to Cambridge. And reconnects with his musical roots, helping with the choir for the homeless and ultimately returning to Aberfan to try
2: and mend the fractured relationships in his life. Thank you. That's what it is about, isn't it? And yet it is about so much more than that. You're including things about masculinity, redemption, the hold of the past. This story allowed you to do that, to explore those issues.
0: Yes, and it has been said there's an awful lot going on in it. But it it really wasn't the case that I, I think some writers completely validly will have something they want to explore in terms of themes. For me, it really was I just had this character in my mind and I wanted to follow his journey. And so therefore, certain topics came up with that and input one of the things that he isn't a typical manly man and he loves to do the makeup and the cosmetology on these dead bodies there's just several ways that he's not typically macho male it's just that's how he seemed to me you know it wasn't any any intention or desire to explore it it was just I just followed followed the character and I can I just say though I'm worried I'm sounding like one of those authors who say and they turned around and told me they were gay. <laughs> and, and I was so surprised because, you know, he, obviously he's part of my imagination. I'm not trying to make out he's any sort of mysterious epiphany or anything, but that's just how he felt to me. And I just explored it. And as I explored it, these different themes arose.
2: And what about writing about Abba Van? I mean, it is such a part of the national consciousness, even for those people who weren't alive when it happened. I mean, I was only two when it happened, but I remember my mum talking about the trauma of it as I was growing up. Well, you must have hesitated a little bit about writing about such a a sensitive event.
0: Yes, I really did. And when I first interviewed the embalmer who actually coordinated all the efforts, I flew to Belfast to meet with him. And we just sat in the, in the lounge, you know, in the the, um, cafe at the airport. And he sat down and chatted friendly for a few minutes. And then he just looked at me and he said, you know, you should leave this well alone. And, you know, so that was obviously very salutary. But then we just chatted. And the point is, he hadn't spoke to anyone about his experience for 40 years. The whole time since the disaster, he hadn't spoken to anyone about it. And he just started talking. And four and a half hours later, he stopped talking and said, maybe this is a story you could tell. And I don't take that as any sort of, you know, blessing. But I just thought, maybe I can try. Because I think it's important for me to point out, I'm not telling the story of van, I'm telling the story of one person, an outsider who went in to help and then left again. That feels different to me than trying to take on the whole theme to say this is about the van experience. It's not. It's about one person's experience.
2: But why did you hook it into ABAVAN? Because you could have created a fictional accident, a fictional trauma.
0: Yeah, I could. But because the impetus of the story was talking to these embalmers who had been in abavan it always just felt very grounded. So, From the outset, my character had felt he'd been there. And so that's what I did. And always with trying the utmost of respect to the people of
2: Abervan. What about names and things like that? Did you use the names of families or children? All names had changed. That felt quite important. And with the Embalmers experience, I mean, at the time, obviously this was a very hidden experience. The trauma of the families was inevitably what the focus was on. And clearly they were these people working behind the scenes in incredibly difficult circumstances.
0: Yes, exactly. It felt quite right, really, that at the time, the work they did shouldn't have been heralded, really, because of the nature of it. But I did, I noticed when I went to Aberfan, the 50th anniversary of it, and there was a display in the library, and there was lots of, of information and credits, but I, I didn't find anything about them. And, and I'm not saying that there should have been, but I'm saying that I think with now over 50 years intervening, that it's, it's an okay time to explore some of the other other stories that were going on around it,
2: and there's some quite grueling scenes, and particularly in the early part of the book when you describe William's experience. How was it writing those? I know you're a mother. How did it feel writing those?
0: It was difficult because it had to be grueling. I couldn't, you couldn't, you couldn't make light of any of that. But again, the whole picture for me was very much about the life of this one man, which has a dark and shade and. There's laughter and there's music and there's lots of other things. But that section I, I knew obviously had to be really focused and really respectful.
2: In the context of the whole book, I feel it it sits there as it should. <laughs> Indeed. And it did strike me reading it how much research you had to do on very many subjects. So you've got embalming, you've got choral music, anatomy. That's before we we're even looking at the time period itself. Yeah. Yes. There was a, there was a lot of research,
0: but it it was enjoyable and interesting. And the embalming aspects had two. It had the historic aspects of embalming. And because once I'd interviewed the two embalmers who'd been there, I didn't want to keep going back and asking them details. So I found another really helpful chap who had been an embalmer at that time, and I just emailed him specific questions, and he got back to me. And then I knew because I needed to have all that authorly sensorial detail, I needed to have seen an embalming. <laughs> so um, I put it off for a bit, but then I did go. And watching embalming locally thought I might faint but then thought well I'll just channel it into the writing if I do but it was okay actually I was the lack of blood made it okay and I found I could watch it with interest and again just be really touched and impressed by the tenderness with which the process was done by the embalming that
2: I watched. And these are subjects that some people might turn away from but you grew up beside a crematorium is that right? Within the grounds of, yes, my father was a superintendent. And so there was
0: this little house actually within the crematorium grounds. So it was a new crematorium. It was beautifully landscaped, no headstones. It was just a big garden with a lake and hills and steps and a bridge. And so once the gates were closed at six o'clock, it was mine my, my sister's
2: playground. Do you think that made a difference in terms of writing this book and addressing these subjects?
0: Probably made me less wary. I was comfortable within that
2: world, you know, the world of the undertaking
0: business I, you know, there was less for me to get over, you know, because it just felt quite natural to, to be inside that world. And they say this innate respect I had for the people who do that job, which I really had as a child. So I, I wanted to be able to to show that
2: and as you said uh, it, it's also about grief and about post-traumatic stress disorder these were things that you also researched presumably
0: yes post-traumatic stress disorder to some extent I'm fortunate to have very good friends in Cambridge who are therapists I mean there is a bit of a standing joke about Cambridge that half of Cambridge is <laughs> therapy with the other half of Cambridge so I've discussed it with friends and, and read some things and with the choir aspect I went and listened to quite a lot I went to a lot of Eden songs and a lot of performances in Cambridge So it's just that thing of trying to drench yourself in something. So you're not even by the end of it, you're not even aware that you're doing research. You're just immersing yourself in something and letting it seep in your pores so that when you write, it's just
2: there. Yes, part of it is set in Cambridge. I mean, obviously, in terms of what you know, that was easier to write about. Yes, because it's on the doorstep that I've lived here for over 30 years.
0: And I'm used to on a Sunday, sometimes in the we go and have lunch somewhere where a lot of the choir boys go straight after they've sung in their gowns. And it always strikes me as interesting. I don't take them for granted. But it's just part of the the backdrop, as it were, and knowing people who've gone through that. And I had great conversations with people who were choristers back in the 50s and 60s. And the 70s actually had some really good conversations with them where they gave me great, great stories. And yeah, most of the stories that are in that section either were stories that had been told me or stories that I'd morphed into
2: something slightly different. Thank you, Joe. Well, we'll come back to you in just a moment. We're sort of staying vaguely with the theme of grief and hearing from Dyrran Nee Griefer. Dyrran's first collection of poems, Clasp, came out in 2015. It won the Hartnett Poetry Award and the Rooney Prize for Irish Literature. Her second collection, Lies, was also critically acclaimed and became an Irish Times Book of the Year. Her third collection, To Star the Dark, was published last year, along with her debut prose work, A Ghost in the Throat. Described as a hybrid of essay, biography and autofiction, it won the James Tate Black Award, was named the Foyles Nonfiction Book of the Year and shortlisted for the Republic of Consciousness Prize. At its heart is an 18th century poem written by an Irish noblewoman, and the narrative flips between the story the poem tells and the challenges in the life of a present day young mother. But before we talked in detail about her extraordinary work, I asked Erin how she felt about the response to the book.
3: I'm absolutely thrilled, you know. I mean, I felt so fortunate from the very beginning when Tramp Press, a, a wonderful small press here in Ireland, took this book on because I knew even as I was writing it that it was an unusual book in the way that it was attempting to weave past and present together and I knew from speaking to people about my passion for this book that it sounded quite strange (laughs) (laughs) so I felt very lucky that Tramp Press took it on published it and then when it began to be shortlisted for so many wonderful awards I was really taken aback by that, let alone winning them, which shocked me to my core altogether. So it's been a wonderful adventure, this book, and and it continues to surprise me.
2: Well, congratulations, many congratulations on it. And it's been described as prose, autofiction. You talk about the unusualness of it in terms of time frames there, but obviously in terms of style, it's something very different as well.
3: It's an unusual one because it grapples with history and with, the factual elements of attempting biography, whether biography of the self or biography of a more distant character, say in terms of history. And it attempts to weave in elements of the imagination as well as fact. I suppose that is a little unusual, but that was the direction in which this book drew me, I guess, as I was attempting to write it and It has been such a delight that readers have responded so well to this attempt in terms of, I suppose, being a little more experimental. And I think readers welcome strange and exciting books. I speak for myself, I suppose, as a total bookworm. (laughs) I love unusual books. I love books that alert the reader to their attempts to try something and then draw the reader along with them in the attempt. So, yeah, it's been great
2: you describe it at the beginning as a female text. Mm. Is there such a thing as a female text? I mean, I know that's maybe not your voice, that's maybe a narrator's voice, but Mm. do you think there is such a thing?
3: This is a question I'm continuing to ask myself, whether a text, whether a book or a poem can be considered gendered. And I know it's something that in academic circles has been debated over and This was a question that continued to occur to me as I was writing the book. And I think in some ways the book itself is my attempt to puzzle over that question. And funnily enough, I don't think I have fully reached an answer to that yet. I think it's something I'm still really curious about and, and wondering about.
2: And at the heart of this book, it's a poem, which I'm ashamed to say I'd not heard of.
3: I'm not surprised that you hadn't heard of it. I think that that would be a very common experience. I think that it's quite rare that people would have heard of it, but perhaps in more academic circles, it would be well thought of. And the title of the poem is Queen Arthi Lira. It's an Irish language lament poem that was composed in the 18th century by a woman named Eileen Dovney Connell. And at the time, she was a young pregnant mother, very sadly, she found her husband's body after he'd been murdered. And she fell to her knees, was compelled to scoop up handfuls of his blood and drink it, that kind of act of consumption of him in some way. And she threw back her head in her grief and, and howled. And that howl began to take the form of a Queena, which in the Irish literary tradition is, is a kind of keen which always occurs to very specific meter and very specific poetic patterns, rhythms and rules. And and it has its own set of linguistic motifs. And she would have been very familiar with this literary form because she would have heard it as a child practiced by her own mother. And it is quite well known within our shared tradition When Peter Levi was Oxford Professor of Poetry, he called it the greatest poem written in these islands in the whole of the 18th century, which to me seems extraordinary Mm -hmm. for a work of oral literature, but particularly a work composed by a woman. The fact that centuries later, it would still be so well thought of, I think, is testament to her skill as a poet, but also the depth of feeling, rage, desire that surges through the poem. It seems to me like everyone who has the opportunity to encounter it responds very strongly to it.
2: It sounds amazing. I really want to go away and read it now. As I say, it's at the heart of the book. You're a poet as well, a woman and a poet. So I want to ask you how much of this is autobiographical, but I wonder if that's a question in a way you don't want to answer given the form that you've used to discuss these ideas.
3: I find it really interesting to discuss this issue. So I'm really glad that you brought it up. A lot of it is very close to my own lived experience. But I suppose when we sit to write a book, there's an element of artistic endeavour that becomes involved through the act of writing. Things shift, things move away from us and swerve strangely. And the written life, develops a distance from the lived life once it's pressed upon the page or at least that's been my experience and that's why it felt so important to me as this book was being published to emphasize the fact that although this is written from my life and from my own experiences and as such is quite close to autobiography there are also moments where it swerves towards the fictional and that it develops a distance and i try to flag that to the reader throughout the pages of this book but I suppose that's one of the ways in which it is a little strange and a little radical and it tends to bring the reader on a kind of unusual adventure Mm -hmm. shall we say
2: (laughs) because there is a tendency I think when we read poetry to assume that the first person the eye of the poem Mm -hmm. is the poet which you wouldn't assume if you were reading a novel
3: Yes, and I think that we all, I suppose, share that tendency as readers, that we assume that there's a confessional element often in poetry, whereas sometimes we may be encountering a persona poem and this great freedom within poetry to explore different iterations of the I speaking from the self, but assuming a different self or a mask within the poem. And that's one of the most interesting and liberating parts of practicing contemporary poetry as an art
2: form. And how was it moving from poetry to writing in in this form, in all these different forms? Was it quite liberating in a way? Did you use that poetic part of your brain or did you feel you were stimulating other parts of your creativity?
3: Both. Attempting long form prose was a real learning process for me. It was so different from, if you imagine the condensed, compressed form that I'm used to working in where I'm trying to communicate All my ideas and the excitement of the linguistic beginnings of a poem, say, within a compressed space of maybe eight or ten lines on a page. And suddenly I had pages upon pages upon pages to work with. And that felt liberating and exciting and it allowed me to sprawl, I guess, in terms of allowing my ideas to grow on the page and to bring more different and disparate elements into the work. And yet at the same time, what I found was that the cadence and the rhythms of my lines were still really inflected by poetry and by the little voice in my ear. And that's how I experience writing so often is as if it's an urgent kind of a whisper in my ear and that I'm almost the conduit in terms of bringing that little voice onto the page. And I could tell as I was reading the paragraphs back to myself, I could hear That it was still poetry. I could hear in my ear that it was still moving like poetry and sounding like poetry. So sometimes I tried to really rework the prose so that it would have a different rhythm to it, a more prose kind of a rhythm to it. But honestly, I think once a poet, always a poet. And there are parts of these paragraphs, if you read them aloud, that you'll hear for yourself that there's a poetic melody still surging underneath it, kind of like a subterranean river. You know, it's still there, It's still there. It's just a little more
2: concealed. And is this blending of forms the new way forward, do you think, uh, for prose? There have been a number of books recently that have really played with the form when we didn't know what was going to happen next in fiction. It seems that this might be it.
3: I think readers are always eager and excited to try something different and something new and something that I find astonishing about Our literary endeavors if we can call them that as a whole is the ways in which we tend to shift and change the ways in which a certain appetite I suppose can become visible among readers and then there's kind of a mysterious link with writers and the way sometimes there's a surge where it can almost seem like a trend from a distance But when you chart it back to the point where writers were composing the books, they were all working individually in their own little quiet rooms, totally unaware, you know, that there would be these parallels drawn between various works that were being completed completely independently, then that readers respond to them. That's quite mysterious. And, And my own suspicion is that that will just continue as it always has. You know, there will always be these changes and shifts in the ways in which the books are being composed and in the books which readers are reaching for and interested in and excited by. And I think long may that continue.
2: And what's next for you? What are you writing at the moment?
3: Oh, (laughs) (laughs) I've just begun a new work of prose, which also looks towards history I suppose as an Irish writer, I always have one eye on history, you know, and, and in expressing what the past wants of us and, and what we want from the past. So I'm just at the very beginnings of that new book and I'm still at the point where it's really exciting me and I'm hurrying to that new book all the time. No matter what I'm up to in my, in my daily life, I, I always have it on my mind.
2: And A Ghost in the Throat by Lee Griefer is published by Tramp Press. We're speaking on bookmark today to Joe Browning Rowe about her debut novel, A Terrible Kindness. William Lavery, your central character, he comes from a family of undertakers. I mean, undertaking or funeral directors, as they're called these days, is generally it was certainly then a family business, wasn't it? Very
0: much, yes. And even the the embalm that I spoke to locally, he was sort of third generation. It seems a very strong thing to to continue. You know, I did meet one in Barma who had no family background at all. And his story was that he had been a barman and got really overwhelmed by the constant having to be on as it were all the time and having to talk all the time and for him and I did reflect this in my character a bit actually there was a real peace and a calmness to be just working with this body who you relate to as a person and talk to what well, he certainly did as he went through the process but nobody else watching it's just the calm and the quiet and the peacefulness of it which I thought was a really nice way to feel about that sort of work.
2: Yes, and that's what William enjoys, isn't it? Because there are many sides to undertaking, dealing with the bereaved, but it's that moment of being with the dead person by yourself, unwatched. Well, he talks to the, the dead person yes. as well that he enjoys.
0: Yes. Well, I, when I watched this embalming happen, I found that when, cause you know, some aspects of the procedure are invasive, there's no two ways about it. But once that was all done and the body's laid in the coffin and the hair's been combed and that, you know, and I found myself actually saying to this woman, all done now, <laughs> you know, and I, I just sort of got pulled into that sort of tenderness, which was really nice.
2: And for William, he's pulled between his love of choral music and the kind of expectation really that he will go into the family business. So there's this conflict within him. Why did you choose choral music to be the thing that pulled him in the other direction?
0: It's interesting because I have been asked something similar before, and I can't for the life of me remember the moment when I decided that's what I wanted to do. But I think I was always enthralled whenever I go and hear one of these performances, the idea of, oh my gosh, what if it went wrong now? Because these little boys, I mean, they're just little boys standing in front of a room full on their their high days and holidays of international strangers. And they just stand up and do it i just thought that moment if something went catastrophically wrong what would happen and one choir master i spoke to about this was really he physically winced at the idea because he so hated the idea that i would be putting forward the idea that they're under pressure and it's stressful and difficult and they could be psychologically damaged but that wasn't i mean all my contact with former choruses they loved it they absolutely loved it but I'm a storyteller, and I just think that's just such an amazing thought, the idea of what if one of these moments,
2: it just all came crumbling down. Let's hear your second choice of music now, which is Let the Day Begin by The Call. Why this one?
0: Well, it's, it's a really old song, and I don't know how many people will of a certain age will remember it, but it's a really positive, loving, inclusive, well-wishing upon upon all of humanity, really, and just picking out, and, and the bit where they pick up on the nurses and the teachers, and, and it feels very fitting at this time when these frontline people are doing such an amazing job for the rest of us. So it just seemed to chime in with that, that as well. Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio.
1: With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. Aspiration.
2: And we're talking on Bookmark today to Jo Browning-Rowe about her debut novel, A Terrible Kindness. Joe, we're talking earlier on about how undertaking funeral directors is a family firm, and you do explore that. And you also explore the feeling of not being in the family, of being excluded from that, which is something that William's mum feels very strongly.
0: With William and his mum, they were very, very close because his father had died young and his mum clearly just dotes on him and they're very, very close. But I needed for my plot for them to have had a real breakdown in their relationship, which I wanted to surprise the reader because they would see how close they had been. And I thought it would be interesting to look at this idea of her being very close with her husband and her son, but then there being this uncle and the Uncle so So, her husband's brother and his partner, who were also very close, a threesome, as it were, they had been before um, William's father married his mother. And so then to have him as being really pulled because he was part of the male friendship thing that was going on, but he was also very close to his mother and he was conflicted between those two. And then that conflict was absolutely blown large when his father died and so there was his uncle and his partner on, on one side of him and his mother on the other. So just his feeling conflicted because I needed him to feel conflicted and some people will be annoyed by her but I always felt she was grief-stricken and so lose, didn't have a layer of skin that most people have and it, and it sort of affected her badly.
2: And we see her as you say through William's eyes, in fact we see the whole story really through William's eyes and at times he's he's very young, a prepubescent boy really, his voice hasn't broken. How was it writing from that point of view i enjoyed it the, the whole thing about writing
0: from my point of view is a man or a boy and then a man and i know that it's sort of fraught with things but again i just had this very strong sense of him and so i just felt i knew what he was feeling how he would respond and um, but i did enjoy writing his mother because there aren't a lot of female characters there are some more abban and his partner but i did i really i did relish writing the female parts as well
2: And in terms of researching the past, uh, because a lot of this takes place in the 60s and 70s, attitudes to homosexuality have changed since then. William's friend Martin is gay, his uncle has a partner. Why did you introduce those elements into the story?
0: My husband and I did, we owned a house with a friend who was gay back in the late 80s, early 90s. So that sort of sense of community of gay and straight people sort of being there for mutual support is always very much part of me. But I think for my character, William, it again put him in this, point of conflict you know because he loves his friend Martin best friend he could ever have but he's not gay and Martin is and just the tension that that puts him under and I think because he just loves his uncle and his uncle's partner it just felt like I was ramping up the the conflict for him by doing that but again I can't really say it was a conscious decision it just sort of happened as I wrote it
2: and I do wonder as um as a sort of side element of this whether people reading this novel will change their view of embalmers because the terrible kindness the kindness is the work of the embalmers which they very much see as a personal service to the dead person
0: that is definitely the spirit with which those people go about that job and in disaster embalming which is obviously acutely difficult and stressful they do amazing things you know in some situations they're just having to pick up airplane crashes for instance you know sort of fingers arms it's just it's unthinkable and yet they do it and it's they do it because everybody matters that's the view everybody deserves to be treated with respect and every grieving person deserves to be able to say their goodbyes so um yeah so that was definitely what i wanted to sort of convey
2: thank you joe we'll come back to you in a moment but let's take a little bit of a sideways step now and hear from Kieran Millwood-Hargreave and Tom de Freston. Kieran is the Sunday Times multi-award winning author of books for children and novels for adults. Her 2021 novel The Mercies was a and Judy Book Club pick. Kieran's husband, Tom de is an acclaimed artist. The children's book Julia and the Shark is their first collaboration. Shortlisted for the 2021 Waterstones Book of the Year, Jacqueline Wilson said, It is a truly beautiful book with text and illustrations in perfect harmony. And when I spoke to Kieran and Tom, who met in Cambridge, I asked them if it was always inevitable that they'd end up working together.
1: We've been waiting for a story where images could add something as opposed to just being a kind of a decorative add-on. This story kind of just fell into our laps, literally, really, didn't it?
4: Yeah, I think it was seeing a Greenland shark during the shark centres around, obviously, Julia, and then the shark is actually a Greenland shark who is this amazing creature that can live for up to 800 years, which still blows my mind when Mm. I think about it. But the texture of its skin is actually what led us to collaborate because the texture of its skin reminded me of one of Tom's paintings.
2: And this was written during the pandemic. So although it's about the shark, the themes and the illustrations also reflect what was going on during the pandemic, the feelings that arose during that time?
1: At the heart of this book are various issues of mental health. Julia's mother, but also what it is to be a child and to kind of realise the complexities of your parents, to realise that they're more than just mum and dad. Julia has to cope with the discombobulating feeling of seeing a parent struggle. Throughout the pandemic, you know, mental health was a big thing, full stop, I think, particularly for children, both their own and then suddenly, you know, being in a house, with their parents 24 7. So we found it kind of seeping into the book and then becoming a central theme, really.
2: And how did it actually practically work in terms of words come first, pictures come first? how did it adapt and change?
1: It ended up being quite smooth, didn't it? That we'd constructed the different roles that the words and images would have. But then Kieran went off and wrote a first draft of the entire novel that was nearly double the length that it ended up being. Um, and then I came in with images and the kind of very clear points in the book, be they dream sequences, be they moments of high drama, be they moments of psychological unrest, where it really felt that images could do something that reached beyond words or could do something in a different way to words.
2: It was a
4: really interesting process and completely new for both of us and a steep learning curve to write a 60,000 word book and then realise that actually it needs to halve in order (laughs) to allow the words to really take over. And actually, it was a bit of a taking away the safety net of those words was actually quite exhilarating in the end. There are these points where Tom's illustrations completely tell the story towards the end of the book. And I think that that's probably the most successful passage of the whole thing. It was just really exciting to learn that this could work. And I think it was a surprise and a delight to all of us, um, our publishers included.
2: (laughs) And so what kind of age group is this aimed at?
4: I would say nine plus. I think parents always know their children best. It does have some heavy themes of mental ill health, but we very much focused on telling those in a child-appropriate and child-friendly way because I'm such a believer in being able to talk about these things. And also Frank Cottrell-Boyce says one of my favourite things about children's books, which is that he believes that fiction is an inoculation against reality. And I do think if children can encounter these things first in a book, they feel better able to face them in real life. And I also want to reassure any potential readers that there's also a comedy cat called Noodle and there's (laughs) lots of facts about science and the stars and it is ultimately a venture story. So we've made sure that this is first and foremost a really child friendly,
2: child engaged book. And given that that's your audience, as it were, and a different audience for both of you, how was that changing the style of what you did, knowing that this was going to be seen and read by younger people rather than adults?
1: I suppose it's your fifth novel for children. Yes. But then, I mean, my work is particularly dark and dense and very much normally not remotely (laughs) child friendly (laughs) or not even just friendly full stop. Um, And that was a big worry. And actually, what was interesting is that lots of the darkness is still there. But there's more obviously clarity. And there's also always hope and wonder. And so the darkness always kind of sits within that. So there's this yellow that runs throughout the book. So there's always this sense that however dark things are, there's light there, there's hope, which I think is in the rest of my work, but is often buried very deeply. But it was actually a joy to kind of strip away all the pretensions of work you make specifically for an adult or art lord audience. Children, if they're bored or disinterested, they don't care about an explanation. It needs to connect with them immediately.
4: It really did need to feel like a book that reached out and grabbed its readers and a book that you could fall into. That's what the artworks particularly does so effectively. You're just in from the first moment, which is very exciting. And we have six nieces and nephews, soon to be seven. And so we have seen this expanse, this range of of ages, and we really wanted something that would really speak to them. And we actually, our eldest niece posed for Julia, for example, and our first readers were our eldest niece and nephew. So yes, it's beautiful art, but it's child-oriented art.
1: When we'd still been making some of the early work, one of our other nieces... My sister had a print from the book up of a lighthouse and she drew a sketch. She was six at the time in like 10 seconds drew these series of sketches actually of the lighthouse. And that was when I just thought, OK, it's worked like there's something in these images that is connecting with at least a child. Yeah, it was kind of it's kind of been a joy, actually, to make it with that audience in mind.
2: And quite nice for you, Tom, has it been to work with yellow? Because it sounds like a lot of your work doesn't include yellow.
1: It's been really lovely, actually. Um, (laughs) And actually to have this brief where it was blacks, whites, grayscale, just this pop of colour, that was a really nice kind of restriction to then see what one colour can do, like what power it can hold. The design team at Hachette, they're kind of almost like the third collaborator on the book, because the way they've packaged the book and the way they've managed to thread all the stuff together is beyond our wildest dreams.
4: I know we're biased but it is the most beautiful book <laughs> I've is ever peaceful. held as an object and we love that it's a celebration of a book as an object. We're fighting against digital and when books are this engaging, this tactile, I think that that's a wonderful thing.
2: And in terms of deciding what pictures complemented the text, did that just sort of emerge organically? Because with illustrations, they have to obviously illustrate what's going on, but add something as well, don't they? Almost tell a story of their own too.
1: I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think they have to offer something above and beyond the words. Otherwise, they're not serving any function beyond decoration. The design team worked with us because I think I handed them about 2,000 works of art you know, gave them all these options of where to place things because I wanted to give Alison as much flexibility as possible as to how words and image would sit next to each other. That's our designer, Alison Hadley. And you'll see throughout the book, there's things like tracing paper inserts. So you have these kind of semi-transparent pages that, as you turn, reveal and conceal things. And we just wanted to make sure there was as much possibility for kind of a variety of rhythm and texture throughout the book. So yeah, those decisions were fluid, actually, and they weren't designed. They've slowly emerged.
4: And Tom was making art until the very last minute. He's such a perfectionist. So Noodle the cat, he wouldn't be happy with how her head was tilted. He didn't think it was quite right. So he'd redraw her so that she was tilted a different way. It was really exciting to watch
2: that process once my work was done and I could just enjoy the rest of it. And working and uh, living together, being a couple together, it it can be disastrous. Uh, How was it for you, particularly during a pandemic? Very bold, very brave. (laughs) Well, we were stuck together
4: anyway, so we thought we might as well be productive. (laughs) I hate sounding like smug merits, but it was so much fun. You know, I think because we've always been incredibly involved in each other's work. So we met obviously when Tom was an artist, I was a student. I wouldn't have started writing if Tom hadn't encouraged me to do so. So we've always been very much central to each other's practice anyway. And it really was a case of waiting for the right story and actually being very frustrated for over a decade that we hadn't found it. So when Julia, the main character walked in, and I do think of her as walking into my head. It felt like such a gift and an opportunity for us to spend time in the same world as opposed to in our separate book and art worlds. We could we could share the same world. And it was actually a real privilege. And I just feel lucky that we've found a, a publisher that will let us do that because we are actually collaborating on something else in the future, which we're deep in it at the moment, and we're really excited looking at Julia and the shark. And and how much we've enjoyed that, and how much that's connected with readers. We just can't wait to do another one now.
2: <laughs> well, that was going to be my next question. Has this inspired you to do more? Clearly, it has.
1: It has. Unfortunately, we're not allowed to say really anything about it, are we? <laughs>
4: Tom especially is unpracticed in in the publishing world, where you get told news, and then you can't share it for two years. <laughs> oh, so I should work on Tom. Then. It's, it's,
1: about... <laughs> it's very, very cold. That's the only thing right. I can say. But it's it's a similar type of book in terms of how words and images work together, but very, very, very different in its setting.
2: And Julia and the Shark by Kieran Millwood-Hargreave and Tom de Freston is published by Orion Children's Books. We've been talking on Bookmark today to Jo Browning-Rowe about her debut novel, A Terrible Kindness, published by Faber and Faber. Jo, uh, what's next for you? Well, when I signed
0: my deal 18 months ago, I knew it was gonna be 18 months before the book was published. And both my agent and editor said, you know, now's a good time to get your head down to do the next one because it's a long wait. And once the book is published, there's a lot of distractions if it goes well, you might think I can never do that again. If it gets criticised, you might then have another knock to your confidence. So they said, just get on with it. So I have got a shaggy dog first draft for the (laughs) next one. Um, But you know, I've got quite a few months to try and tighten that up. So I am trying to get back into a sort of two hours a day on
2: that, which is a good grounding thing to have going on. I know you won't want to say much about it because writers never do, but is it similar to Terrible Kindness or very different? Very, very different, but there may be a crematorium or two. On it. <laughs> that might be your motif from now on. <laughs> well, maybe just for this one, after that would be something completely different. <laughs> and a question that we ask all our guests on Bookmark, what are you reading at the moment?
0: Well, I'm doing a reread, actually, because I was asked for something else that I was doing to say what book brings me most joy. And I knew instantly which it was. And that's um, a book that I first read a long, long time ago. And it's a prayer for Owen Meany. What a wonderful Um, book. The minute I get back into it, I'm just smiling because I want to be in that world. And it's meeting my old dear friend, Owen Meany, who
2: feels like part of me, really. And it's such a such a rich tapestry of a story. What a wonderful book. Yes. And he speaks in capitals. And if anybody hasn't read it, they absolutely should. Well, we'll come back to you for in just a moment for your last choice of music. But a heads up on our next show. It's a nonfiction focus on our next show. Our featured guest is Malcolm Gaskill talking about the ruin of which is life and death in the new world. We'll hear from Diane Coyle on her book Cogs and Monsters about modern economics. And Jonathan Drury talks about his book Around the World in 80 Plants about the science, history, culture and folklore of plants. But we'll sign out now, Joe, with your last choice of music, which is New Year's Day by U2. Why this one?
0: This was my husband's and mine song when we first met way, way back at Homerton College, Cambridge here. And yeah, there's a lovely story behind it. But the point is that in the last over 30 years that I've been trying to be a novelist, his support has been just phenomenal. And so I wanted a a song that could be a nod to him and his encouragement and support.